Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another broadcast on the Soul of America Radio. Tonight, you're listening to Hope and Healing, a journey to wholeness, with your host, J.R. Thickland. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Blog Talk Radio, hosted and produced by the Soul of America Radio. Comments made on tonight's broadcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Blog Talk Radio, the Soul of America Radio, or its host. Hope and Healing takes you from a place of pain, abuse, violence, rejection, and abandonment to a place of hope, healing, and power. All aboard with your author, activist, advocate, and friend, man of purpose himself, and your host for the evening, Mr. J.R. Live, 
Then, if you'd like to listen to us by way of telephone, you can listen by dialing area code 323-784-9638. Area code 323-784-9638. That is how you reach us here. And by the way, if you desire to have a question and or comment, even as the show is going on, feel free to hit the number one on your keypad. That lets our producer know that you want to come on, you have a question and a comment, and we are so glad that you do. Now, keep in mind, as you're on this show tonight, that each of our shows are uh, uh, recorded live, and they are in podcast. That means that this show here, when this show is recorded, this show can be uh, recycled, it can be sent out to you, it can be shared with others. So keep in mind that as you share your comments, that guess what? Your comments are your comments. Does not necessarily reflect the views of the Soul of America Radio Network or any of our partners. So you take total ownership of the sh- of your comments tonight. Tonight's a special show, and I want to tell you just a few other things that in listening to the show, I want you to know that you can follow us on Facebook. We have a few Facebook pages. One of them is Domestic Violence. It is your business. It's an open group page there, and you'll find much information about domestic violence, sexual violence, and not only where to turn, you'll find many different resources that are there. But we also have our page, Destiny by Choice 2, Fellowship page, which is our inspirational page. It is one where prayers and worship and fellowship is going on. It is one that is uplifting to each and every one that listens and that desires to be a part of it. And then, of course, we have our J.R. Ficklin page where you will find many things that are insightful there, and it's a way to continue to communicate with us tonight. Now, tonight we're very excited about tonight's show. Tonight's show, all two hours, is dedicated to confronting the culture of violence, confronting the culture of violence. I believe that there is a culture of violence in America, and because of this culture of violence, there are many things that have been tolerated and have been accepted and many ways have been normalized. And so we want to definitely address that on our night, tonight's show. Tonight's show is very special because we have very special guests that are with us tonight. In our first hour, we have a pleasure, distinct pleasure, having two very special guests. These are survivors and thrivers, and they're going to be sharing excerpts of their story in their journey. I think tonight you're going to hear some very great, great comments and hear some very powerful stories about those who have overcome, those that have gone through it, and those that are yet on their journey of being made whole. And that's very important. So tonight, our first guests tonight that are coming up, our first two guests, we have Both Minister Cassandra Smith, she's going to be sharing. Uh, Cassandra, uh, she uh, she has been launching out. She's telling her story more and more. She has launched a ministry that is called God. God heals all hurts, and so she's going to be joining us on tonight, as well as Leela Adams. Leela has a powerful story. Leela talks about the story of a multiple abusive relationship, how she came out, and in both cases, these women have come out. They have turned their pain into power, and they are doing some great things to make life a better life, and I believe that their stories are impacting so many. They're impacting people all over the globe, and tonight, I want you uh, to give a great Soul of America radio welcome to both Cassandra and Leela. Come on, let's do it. Well, good evening, ladies. I know you both are there, both Leela and Cassandra. Good evening. Welcome to Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. Good evening. 
Goody, I know that you're both there inside of that, and we're going to straighten it out. I'm so anxious to share and have you to share bits of your story with each and every, uh, both of you sharing with the audience that is out there. And there are people that are listening from all over the world, not just those that are listening at this very hour, those that will go back, listen to the podcast. Uh, it is a known fact that when we go back and look at our records from this station, that oftentimes there are people that are listening to it, thousands, even after the show has aired. So I want to make sure that's the case. Now, one of the things that's very important, I don't know, uh, inside of even the radio, uh, inside of your phone being open, if this is a speakerphone, it will come back at you so you'll hear an echo inside of it. But what I want to do tonight is that I want to welcome you both on the show tonight. And why don't we do this? And I don't know which one of you want to go first in sharing your story uh, and sharing excerpts of your story, but we want both of you to share. So why don't we at this point in time here, I don't know, you want to do an alphabetical order, you want to do it uh, uh, by flip of a coin and everything, but we're anxious to have both of you. Um, if you don't mind, Cassandra, I would like to kind of share my story. Okay. Um, first and of I all, just, um, mm-hmm. go right ahead. And Leela is speaking at this moment. Go right ahead, Leela. Okay, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me on your show. And uh, my story Absolutely. may be frightening, but my goal is to get hope. And I heard recently that the word listen has the same letters in it as the word silent. So please listen while I share with you and don't be silent. I was asked to um, talk on this show tonight about domestic violence, and I want to be open to share with you what domestic violence does to women, and I want to be honest with you. Um, My um, journey started with domestic violence about 25 years ago. So... um, my first relationship was when I was 25. Um, that relationship will last um, about 16 years. And out of the 16-year relationship, um, with my partner at that time, we uh, bore a child together. Um, of course, in the beginning, um, it was honeymoon stage. But thereafter, um, giving birth um, to my son, um, that's when the balance began. That's when the verbal, the physical... The economic uh, violence began. Um, my relationship would last a total of 16 years. Uh, within the 16-year um, window period, you know, I've um, sustained multiple head injuries. I've sustained so many head injuries I can't keep count. Nearly broken arms, legs, uh, contusions. But what was the final uh, Draw of me leaving the relationship, or door is thing of me leaving the relationship was when um, I grew tired of the substance abuse as well as the the anger issues that uh, my partner at the time had. So I went to him and told him that I wanted to end the relationship, and I remember him telling me that um, in three days that he would get even with me. And, yes, three days he came back, and um, all I can remember um, about that evening was um, waking up in the ER in a blood-drenched bed where um, this person that was my partner at the time had um, brutally attacked me from behind. Um, He he beat me to the point of um, a canatonic state, and then he drug me four blocks over and tried to shove me down a drainage. Um, 
the person that was living in the residence that I was um, living in at the time was a 14-year-old girl who witnessed this crime. So she went back and told my sister, whom I was living with at the time. And when she initially approached my sister about um, me being um, nearly uh, fatal um, injured at that time, my sister didn't believe her. Then when she came back 30 minutes later, she knocked on the door and told my sister that, she needed to come to the the end of the building because something bad had happened to me. By that time, she, my sister was convinced to walk to the end of the building where she found just a blood-drenched scene. Um, she went back in the house, and um, she got her, her apartment that she was at with, and they began foot patrol, and they found me six blocks over where I was um, in a drainage. And the only thing was hanging out of the um, drainage was just, my head and my um, hands cling to the the rail. I was transported um, by EMS as a trauma patient to St. Mary's Hospital, where I was told that I uh, got on a table three times and came back. And I remember when I was um, unconscious or in a catatonic state, there was a, a black and white image um, coming um, um, over me, you know, back and forth over me. And I didn't realize at the time because it was just a little image. And what it was, it was a police officer. He was sitting there at the, at the um, foot of my bed because he wanted to, to see whether or not I was going to either survive or die in that injury. And after I, um, you know, came out of the, um, the catatonic state, he told me, explained to me what had happened where um, the, the boyfriend at the time had brutally attacked me. Um, he drugged me over, four blocks over, and attempted to kill me. He only uh, got 13, not, not 13, I'm sorry, he only got 30 days in jail for that, that um, crime. He only got charged with aggravated assault. And I think maybe because, in the, maybe because it was 1989, 1990, the, the, the abuse, I guess the domestic violence uh, uh, laws wasn't so strong, so he only got 30 days. Um, and wow. what I did was I, I went back to him. I went back to him maybe two years later to try to um, rebuild my family, but as I went back to him, it, it got even worse. And I would stay in that relationship maybe about six, seven years, and thereafter that, I, I grew tired. I finally grew tired. I... Um, went to victim services, and um, I got counseling. And in between me going to victim services, I still was going back and forth to him. But finally, my eyes were open. I decided to leave permanently. And then thereafter that, I began to go to the Center for Family Services, where I became a spokesperson, um, a group leader, and um, uh, a support um, group leader. Um there after that, um, during the course of me getting involved with the Center for Family Services and then they spoke person, I met another gentleman. Um, he and I, um, we were long-distance uh, partners for maybe four or five years. Then after that, um, took a leap of faith, went out and began to travel throughout the country with him. In the beginning, it started off verbally. Um, there after that, when um, he and I got married, that's when everything changed. I had to 
I had to speak the way he wanted me to speak, dress the way he wanted me to dress, eat what he wanted me to eat. I became um, I guess his um, his object or his obsession. Um, I couldn't speak to my family, anybody that he felt would come in to threaten um, his relationship with me. He just isolated them from me, including my son. Uh, within three years of the relationship, um, my son um, was removed out of the relationship, and he went to go live with his father because uh, my partner, my my ex husband at the time, was a very violent man, and not only did he abuse me, he began to abuse his children as well. So I felt that my son would be safer out of the relationship. And what um, made me leave the second um, uh, partner of domestic violence was um, he and I um, was going to the gym, and one of his, um, how can I say this, one of his um, demands for me was that I go to the gym seven days a week, but this one particular day, I didn't want to go to the gym, so he and I went in the gym, and, you know, we got on the treadmill, and I guess you could see the expression on my face that I just really didn't, physically I was there, but mentally I, I didn't want to be there. So he looked at me, and he, you know, he motioned to me that, you know, when I go outside that I was going to get it, and I remember walking out of the gym, and when I turned the corner, he uh, pushed me in the bushes, and I remember him walking back to the car, you know, and when he, and um, when I, Finally pulled myself up to get out of the, um, the bushes and began to walk to the car, got in the car. He began to beat me until we got to the residency. When we got to the residency, um, he took me inside of a basement. When he took me in the basement, he began beating me. He, be- he began beating me with broomstick handles, belt, um, his fist, his feet, anything, that any offer that he can get. Um, I remember that beating made it last between 10 to 14 hours, and um, it must have, I said that maybe about, it ended maybe about before noon the next day, and I remember the next day he had smaller children, and they came over, and he wanted us to, to get together for family festivities, and I didn't want to get together uh, with the kids, not that I didn't, not that I didn't want to be in the family festivities. It's just that I was just too bruised and too sore, so I didn't feel up to it. So I told him I didn't, I didn't um, want to be a part of the festivities, and he told me that I was going to be a part of the festivities. And so when I finally t- when I stood my ground and said, look, I'm, I'm not going to be a part of, you know, going out with you and the kids tonight, I remember him taking the kids to the car and I remember the door slamming, and then when I remember, like, raised my head to look up, there stood my ex-husband, who was six foot two, probably 270 pounds to 290 pounds. He just jumped on my back, and I could just feel like it's, you know, every bone in my body had broke. And I remember dragging myself throughout the house, and I must have got maybe two pieces of clothing articles, and then I dragged myself to the car. It must have took me about an hour just to get in the car. And then finally when I turned it on, the turned ignition on, that's when my ex-husband and his kids drove up in the car, and he he tried, he tried to convince me to um, to um, to go back in the house so he and I could talk, and um, which I didn't. I remember just he and I just 
racing down the, the streets of Atlanta, and then finally he motioned to me to pull over. I did, and I went back to the house, and um, he told uh, me that, you know, he would take me to the Greyhound where I can be, um, where I can um, be, where I can um, be able to come get back home safely. Um, and I remember um, talking to his children, and his children convincing me to stay with him and his dad, with their dad, and I told them that it was time for me to go. Um, so finally he and I got back into the vehicle. We began driving. We passed by the Greyhound station. We passed by the police department, and I remember him saying, do you think that I'm going to let you go? Before I let you go, I will put you in a body bag. This is your night to die. And all I can remember after him saying it was your night to die, I just remember just jumping out of a moving car. And I think like anything other than that. And I can just remember after, my, after I hit the ground, I can remember a female voice telling me to go inside this store. And it seemed like the faster I was running, the, the, the further the store would get. But Finally, I ran into the store. There was an officer, and I fell at his feet, and I told him I needed help. And I remember maybe it was 15 or 30 minutes later, um, my ex-husband came in, and he tried to pull me from off of the um, police officer's seat. And he told, and the officer said, you know, this lady is terrified of you. I can't let her go with you. And I remember there after that, about five um, Atlanta police was coming in where he and I walked out of the store, and it was seven police cars where he was arrested. And um, he served three years in prison. Currently, um, he had 15 years probation, and as long as I reside in Florida, he can never come in Florida. And if he do come in Florida, the remaining of the 15-year probation, he would have to serve that out in prison. Um, I talk about what happened to me to as many people as I can because, they hear that there's half out there and that I got away, they can too. They can do it too. My story is not over. I told you, I'll be honest with you, I'm still alive. I'm still alive, but I'm not free. So I am a survivor. I am a survivor. I need you as much as you need me. When is the next support group meeting for us and where? I want to thank you again for listening to my story. And please don't be silent when it comes to domestic violence. Thank you so very much, Leela. I think that your story was absolutely powerful. I know there's a few questions that I have before we before we move on, and I'm quite sure anyone that's listening right now, any of our callers that are listening, area code 323-784-9638, if you have a question for Leela or comment, uh, feel free to just hit the number one on your keypad that lets our producer know that you want to uh, have something to say. And uh, you may have a question. You don't have to give your name if you don't like, but – Definitely, if you hit one on the keypad to let us know, and we will get you on to ask a question. Let's give her, Alila, a hand right here at Soul America Radio Studio for her story. Absolutely. So, Alila, I can almost hear the wheels of people mind turning, and they're trying to figure out, okay, that fact that you got out of the first very abusive relationship in which this individual literally killed you, you dying literally on the table uh, three times, uh, uh, nearly decapitated you and putting you down a drain, and you got out of that relationship. You became a spokesperson inside of working with these things there. And I guess the question that I could hear people asking is that 
what led you into another abusive relationship? Did you feel that you were healed? Was this person just uh, particularly, uh, 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 you know, very charming, alluring? Uh, what led you into another relationship? Because I know the first thing is that you did not realize you was getting into another abusive relationship. So I think the question is, how would one know that they are ready to move on into another relationship after have been in such an abusive one prior to? For me, it was um, the second um, the second person was very charming and. And if I say that I didn't see the red flag before um, getting to the relationship, you know, I'll be, I'll be lying. Because I did see the red flags, but um, I thought that being with this person that I could change this person. But you, but what I realized, you can't change people. People are who they are. Um, so was I completely healed with being... Um, have the responsibility of being a spokesperson and a team leader. I think at the time I was a whole person, that, but I think that when the person came into my life at that time, there was something about me that wasn't whole or there was something that was missing. So when he came into my life, I felt that that, that it was a void that was filled. So. And so when you say the fact that you said you saw some early warning signs, what were they? What were the warning signs that you saw that, that you might have chosen to ignore? Um, he would talk about um, the way I dress, the way I talk. Um, he would be he would control um, the food that I ate. Um, he didn't like uh, me having friends. I remember even, um, I remember initially taking a course at Palm Beach State um, College that was formerly Palm Beach Community College. It was a two-week course, and I remember taking that course, and he was against that. So there were, just, there were signs that I saw, but I, I, I just ignored them. I, it's just like the caution sign. I saw, I saw the caution sign, but I went through it anyway, even though I knew that there was um, signs of abuse. And so let me ask you a question. How much, and because this is a real, uh, this is a real legitimate question for those that have been in an abusive relationship, and surely they don't want to be in a place where they don't believe in love anymore, or believe that they can ever have a have a uh, a uh, good relationship. How much of that may have played a part in it? That, to a certain degree, maybe a victim is saying, "I refuse to allow that last individual to steal my sense of uh, purpose, or my sense of." you know, wanting to be in a relationship or my sense of deserving to be in a relationship, how much did that play a part uh, that perhaps one reach a point that they say, look, I'm not going to let fear stop me from getting into a possibly good relationship? Did that have anything to do with your motivation? I don't know. I feel maybe I didn't have motivation or maybe my self-esteem was low or maybe at the time I needed that person in my life to make me feel whole because it seemed like anything that I did positive for myself at that time, for me it was good enough, but for him it was not good enough. And I feel that I was, see, I, I feel for me, I'm a people pleaser. So I was more pleasing him than myself. So it was some, some doubts about myself and some insecurities than me that I know that I need continuing um how can I say, continuing help in order to continue to keep a healthy mind. 
And so as you're getting out of that relationship, after, I mean, as, I mean, as you got out of the first relationship, and what was the period of time between that uh, that relationship ending and the uh, relationship that ended up with you marrying this particular guy? Well, what was the period of time between the two? Um, it probably was about eight years, about eight years span. So eight years. So in, in that time, you had been doing some speaking and all those things, which was very amicable. You did some other things there, and you felt, you know, you felt that you was making a difference. And we know how important that is to anyone. You know, the sense of feeling like I'm making, I'm making a difference. I this past life is behind me, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, I'm going on to bigger and greater things, and yet it's still in this case here. You find yourself in a situation where it began to become worse rather than better as you got into it. Now, this new relationship moved you from the state of Florida, which had been your home. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. How much did that play a part in you remaining there? It played a great part because when you when you move somewhere where you're not familiar and all you know is the person that um, – you took a leap of faith of, of of being there with. All I knew was my partner at the time, who became my husband. So, me um, me being out there by him, uh, with him, and having no family, no friends, no familiar places, um, I had I felt that I had to stay in that relationship, and I felt that if I came home, that I would be a failure. So, I continued to stay in the relationship. So it's safe to say that I really appreciate you being transparent because oftentimes people say what they wouldn't do. And, you know, and everyone can play Monday morning quarterback. We can look at things after it's happened and say, well, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have did that and the other. But the reality is that there are so many other factors that plays a part, especially when you have come out of anything that, you know, whether it's an abusive relationship, a failed relationship, a failed marriage, a failed whatever, but oftentimes that when you come out of that and you've gotten in another one and that looks like it's failing, wow, it's harder to come out of that one. Sometimes than it did the previous one because you don't want to seem like I failed again. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be uh, you don't want to be viewed as if wow she can't get it right or he can't get it right. So you get into this point where you almost begin to fight this battle that I'm going to make this right and this is going to turn and this is going to change because it's almost like a a desire to if to save face and and is that I mean does that resemble anything that you face or that you might have yeah, felt at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I felt that uh, me leaving the relationship, um, if I had left it earlier, I felt like I was going to be a failure. So I continued to stay. Not only that, uh, my ex-husband, he went from one extreme to the next extreme, and I'm going to explain it. He was, in one token, beat me until I became unconscious or walking around with two black eyes or um, contusions, bruises, nearly broken arms, legs, and the next day he would go take me on a shopping spree, or he would see, or he would buy me a brand new car, or he would take me um, to to get uh, pampered uh, spa, or um, you know, any he would go from one stream to the next stream. So it after a while for me, it 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 just became I became numb. And the 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 one extreme to the next extreme it didn't work anymore. 
because I felt at the end, at the, end of, at the beginning of the end of the day, I realized that if I had not left, that my life would have ended. And that's a powerful thing because when you find yourself in those type of situations, not only does it affect the way you see yourself, it affects the way that you see life. And that is, uh, unfortunately, that is uh, typical, oftentimes abusive behavior. We talk about that cycle of violence and we talk about that honeymoon stage or that stage where that perpetrator often, you know, where I'm so sorry, whether they're buying gifts, whether the big gifts be cars or Joe expensive jewelry or vacations or whatever, once again, all of these things are meant to, to, you know, to recondition the mind of the person that they're abusing to feel like things are all right. And yet it's still, you know, you found yourself getting in this. It became worse. And um, you talk about the fact of him beating you oftentimes from one extreme to the other to the fact that uh, I remember you sharing your story once and the fact that uh, he had beat you so on one side that you were basically numb and you were so so restrained that you you begged him, you know, to hit the other side because that side had been so damaged. And and that's almost a reflection of what happens even psychologically is that, Abuse is very impactful. It impacts the way we see ourselves, the way that we see things, and to the point that we are normal. And it's almost at a period of time that we almost accept that this is what this is what's going to happen to me. This is my fate. But then, for those, sometimes there is a wake up call. There's a wake up call that says, "I got to get up out of here before I lose my life." Or I got to get up mm-hmm. out of here for the sake of my child or my children, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, and when your wake up call came, you found yourself—I mean, literally—running for your life. Uh, remember, you mm-hmm. sharing your story about even you know, mm-hmm. uh, jumping out of the car and the things that happened. Mm-hmm. And for those that don't know you, it's not like you're this very big person. You're a very small individual, <laughs> and so the fact that any type of contact with anything is uh, is abusive, and the fact that you would you would leap out of a car and end up on the ground uh, says a lot, you know, and inside of hurting and everything. So you got out of that marriage, you got out of that marriage, you found safety, you have a restraining order on, you're back here in the sunny, sunshine state, and uh, and you're on a journey again. Not only are you on a journey of healing, but you're on a journey of empowering. You've been sharing your story more and more. You're doing some writing. You're in school, finishing up even further in your education even more, and uh, you're making some differences. You've had quite a few appearances lately, uh, uh, speaking in different places, empowering people. So I, I say to you that I think you're well on your way and making a difference, and uh, and I want to say thank you because of the fact, you know, there's someone listening to this show right now, not to mention to those that will listen to it even later, that will find hope inside of what they're hearing from you. So I want to say thank you so very much for sharing, and I don't know if you have a last thing that you'd like to say. I want you to, I want to invite you to stay on the line even after your part here because I think there's so much and so many compelling and, and intriguing things to say. So I don't know if you have any last things that you would like to say at this moment. Um, just thank you for um, allowing me on the show, and um, you know, for me, um, life is. I'm continuing, how can I say, um, I'm continuing to heal, I'm continuing to grow. Um, every day for me is a struggle, but I know with the grace of God, he will get me through anything. And um, I just want to continue to go out and just share my story, not only for me, to give me um, healing, but also 
for other people. So if I can help someone else with what I went through, you know, I want to continue on with that journey. So, um, again, thank you for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Come on, let's give another Soul of America Radio uh, for those of you that are listening in, hold on. Right after this commercial break, we'll be right back. And uh, uh, Minister Cassandra will share her story, how she's gone from pain to power. you listen to Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. We'll be right back after this commercial break. You're listening to the Soul of America Radio. You're listening to Hope and Healing, a journey to wholeness with your host, J.R. Thicklin. And remember, you can catch this show every Monday night, 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern and 8 o'clock p.m. Central. And give them a call tonight at 323-784-9638. 323-784-9638 This is Soar. Two three seven eight four nine six three eight. You give Jay a call right now. And now back to the show. And we're so glad to have had Lila on, and definitely I'll 
Uh, make sure that you have an opportunity to reach her later on in the show. Uh, we'll talk about uh, ways that you can reach her directly if you like to. But I want to welcome right now our other guest. Our guest that's on this hour is none other than Minister Cassandra Smith, and she's coming on now. What a tremendous story that she has. Uh, I have had the opportunity to meet her recently, although I've been seeing her posts on Facebook beforehand, but her story is very compelling, and I want tonight to welcome her to a Hope and Healing, a Journey of Wholeness. Let's give a great show of America Radio. There you go. To Cassandra, uh, welcome to Hope and Healing, a Journey of Wholeness. You're on the air with us. Talk to us. Why are you here? How did you get here? Well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, well, my story is a little different because my first abuser was a family member. And I was about nine years old, almost ten. And I told my mom about my abuser, and she didn't listen. She said that. I wasn't coming in to destroy her relationship. So I ended up at my grandmother's house where a friend of my grandmother's started touching me. And after that, I I just, I didn't understand what was going on or nothing. So I met this guy. He told me everything I needed to hear. And I started dating him. He started telling me what to do, how to do it. Um, He would make me sleep outside until his mom went to sleep and sneak me in. And one day I was at school, and I was leaving school, and one of the boys from my class, he ran up to get um, my homework because he wanted to copy it, and he's and my abuser seen it, and he started beating me, and he beat me and beat me up from each street, and one of my cousins seen me, and she tried to come up and help, and he told her, if you do not back up, I'm going to kill her. So I was like, oh, I can't go back to this house. I can't do this. I can't do that. So I ran away from him. And I started going to school, and I withdrew myself from school, one school, and I signed myself out and started going to another school. And I had an uncle that didn't mind for me to come. So I went to his house, then I met somebody else. And he started telling me all the good things and this and the other. And I we got together. And he, he just beat me, so it seemed like day and night, night and day, day and night. So I called my grandma, and I told her, I was like, you have somebody in your house that is abusing me, and I'm two streets over from you, and I'm being abused too. I need some help. And she told me it wasn't her problem or her business. I have a mom tell her. So it started there, and then I got married, and he started beating me, beating me so badly till one night, I remember, 
I smelled smoke, and I tried to open the window because I seen the fire. Well, he nailed the windows, and he took the gas and put it by the air conditioner thing outside. And if it would have caught a fire, it was going to blow me and my son, which is his son, up. So I called the deacon from my church because I started going to this church, and I called him. And he came, and he helped me, and he got me out. But I went back because I called the shelter, called the domestic violence shelter. It was full. So I didn't have nowhere to go. So I went back to him. So I say a month, everything was fine. Then another two months went by, started back beating me, beating me, beating me. And one day, I see him put on a T-shirt. And I I went to that shirt at first, and then I looked at it again. A lady upstairs said, did you see that T-shirt your husband had on? And I said, no. She said, girl, you need to look at it. So when he came back in the house, I seen it. It had my picture, and it said, in loving memory. So I didn't say nothing to him. I started packing stuff every day and taking it to the storage, taking it to the storage. So that night when I laid down, I couldn't breathe. And I went to move, and I couldn't move. He was standing over me with a pillow trying to smother me. And I pushed him to keep him off of me. And when I jumped out of the bed and I tried to run out, the door was locked. So he took the this orange stinger cord, the thick one. He said, I told you I was going to kill you. And that's what I meant. So he started beating me, beating me, beating me. And I mean, I was hollering so loud that it woke up the neighborhood, the whole neighborhood. And they called the police. They came and they took him to jail. He was out with after 30 days. So I went back to the attorney office and I said, why did you let him out? He's like, well, we really couldn't keep him. I didn't, and I didn't understand at the time. So I went to the domestic violence shelter, but then <laughs> it got to the point where, okay, well, you're at the end of your stay. So now we got, you have to leave. Okay, I don't have a place to go. I have this little baby, and I wasn't working a good job at the time, and I really was trying to put myself through school. And I went back because, again, he started being charming and saying, I promise I won't do it no more. I want my family. I want my son. By that time, I was pregnant again. So we moved. We didn't move in a good area, but it was an okay area. I did not know at the time that he was on drugs. So money started being missing. And when I asked him, he would slap me down and kick me and just beat me. And when he was beating me this last time, I pushed him. And when I pushed him, I ended up getting arrested for defending myself, for pushing him. And But when we went to court, they they dropped it. Then I went back again, 
And I know it sounds crazy, but when you don't have a place to go and you really don't have family to stand up for you, it's very, very hard. So I went back. We tried it again. And this time, he, he, I was in the shower, and he plugged up the iron. And I thought I wasn't paying attention because he usually come in there and either plug up the radio or something. If something just told me to get out the shower. As I was getting out the shower, he was throwing the iron in the shower. Wow. And he was trying to kill me. And he said, if you ever leave me again, that was the only way you're going to leave is in a body bag. And I said to myself then, pregnant and all, I have to get out of here. I got to. So he fell asleep, and I only thing I grabbed was my son's identification, my identification, and one set of clothes. And I ran. And when I ran, I kept running until I ended up in Orlando. And I stayed in a park until I was able to get on my feet. I didn't tell anybody. No one knew anything. My family didn't know I was homeless. No one knew that I was homeless. And I went back, started school. I finished school. When I finished school, I came back to West Palm Beach. I got into Bible college, and I started just reading my Bible, reading, 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 reading. And he had a nerve to come and say, I want my kids, and I'm going to take them from you. He started calling DCF on me, started telling them that I didn't have a place to stay, I didn't have this, I didn't have that. And I told him, I thank you for calling because now they're involved and they helped me get a place to stay. They helped me get daycare for my, both of my kids. And I went back to work. And I got better. And I went to court. When we went to court, the judge said, there is no way to give you this lady's kids. Because if you can harm her, you will definitely harm her kids. So they gave me sole custody, my two children, and I have a lifetime restraining order. If he come within not even five feet of me, he will go to jail. And he will go for the rest of his life. And after that, I just started saying, I have to get me some help. So I started seeing a therapist because I didn't know that I had so much built up because the person who I thought was supposed to protect me didn't protect me from the family member. Then I get in something else over at my grandmother's house. She didn't protect me. And then I tried to, I went up to my dad when I was younger, and he sent me back because my mom was talking trash and she wanted him, wanted me back, but not knowing that she basically was pimping me up. So I thank God that I have a husband now that understands my pain and understands that I have to finish writing my book. I have to finish telling my story because I see other people, young ladies that are going through, and I want them to know that there is 
a blessing at the end. There is a test that you're going to have to go to. You can't have the money if you don't have the test first. I, I just keep praying. I keep talking about it. I keep letting people know that, hey, if I can make it, you can make it. You can make it because I've been through so much from the age of nine until my adulthood. It was a constant abuse, verbal, physical, all of that emotion, all of that was abuse to me to the point where I got so frightened I wouldn't let my kids go around anybody because I didn't know. I just didn't know. And family, oh, can they stay tonight? No, they can't. They cannot. And I, I don't want, I didn't want to be that way, but I had to be that way because of my mind. My mind was constantly going, and I didn't trust anybody. You tried to be, a, if you were a woman, you were Christ, I'm trying to be my friend, but you're trying to turn into a motherly person, I would shut down. And as far as men, when they go to raising their voice at me, I'm gone. Even my husband now, he didn't understand what, what kind of pain that I had. And I always, from day one, I told him, it's not that I need to be validated. I just need somebody to reassure me because I didn't have a dad. I didn't know who he was until I was 21 years old because my mom gave me multiple dads. So I didn't know. And, and therefore, that impacted you in a number of ways because, you know, and, and I mean, very powerful story because you crossed a lot of different lines there. Yeah, that's right. Let's give her a hand. Let's give hand. Thank you so very much. You know, that touched on a lot of issues because oftentimes people see domestic violence and they think that it just starts from a relationship that is abusive. But in many ways, yours started almost in the most unthoughtful way. Here was you were being abused from a family member at home. And when you tried to air that and tried to get help and when there was your cry to say this is what's happening to me, that was met with saying, look here, I'm not going to let you basically ruin what I've got. You know, be quiet, you know, not being believed. And in many ways, that push you even further, that push you right into the hands of this type of situation. Would you agree? Yes. And it became a cycle for me. And I said, so one day I said, I'm not going to be the victim anymore because I guess I was, at the time, I was looking for love, and I looked for it in all the wrong places. And no, I did not do drugs. I did not do that. I did not do alcohol. I just It was never me. But I got to the point where my second abuser basically made me have sex with his friends. They went to raping me. And that became so horrific to me, so I just started being numb. And that ripped away at not only the way you saw yourself, there was no place of safety that you knew at that time because to a certain degree you had been rejected by your mother, you had been rejected by other family members, you had been validated by others. So you find yourself and often say that people are not always running, they're not just running away from something, they're running into something. 
And so, mm-hmm. you know, in an attempt to get away, you really find yourself running even deeper into the hands of those very very same type of relationship, those type of things there. And the, the deepest yeah, humiliation is... he was a controlling person. He, he sat at my job on Fridays and took all the money. And I was young. I started getting a job when I was like 14. And he would take my money and he would move me in his house. He was married. He was married and he had two other women. And wow. I couldn't say anything. We all couldn't say anything. We weren't allowed to say anything to each other. We had to get along. It was just a, a cycle. And I feared, I feared that I was going to die. And in the process of that, I lost a child. I lost a child. And then I got pregnant again. Then I, It was just like, God help me because what else do I supposed to do? And I want us as a community, as women, we have our little girls now, even little boys. Stop telling them whatever goes on in my house stays in my house. Because that's not true. So the culture of secrecy actually contributes to this type of violence happening. Yes. Yes, because when I was growing up, that's what I was told. Whatever goes on in my house stays in my house. And guess what? I couldn't take it no more, so I got out of that house. And I thought I was going to safety by going to my grandma. But it just kept going and going and going and going. And it wasn't just um, verbal abuse, but I was physically being abused. I was sexually assaulted. And I was told that it was my fault. And I was trying to figure out at nine years old, how could I be at fault of someone sexually abusing me? And it wasn't just a male. It was a female, too. And so these things are happening. Your support system was non-existent inside of that, and you were constantly being blamed, saying that it was your fault. And there you are battling this whole thing about how can it be my fault when, you know, I'm not the person in charge here. I'm not the one that, you know, gets to make these decisions. Correct. Yet still you find yourself in that position. And and let me ask you this. You know, you went through a lot, and you, you came out of it, and, Everything and, and definitely your 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 faith in God are are really you know played a great part in you getting out of this, and yet it still it goes without saying that this is a journey. This is a journey. This is a journey that one takes. This is a journey to find wholeness, and oftentimes people that we love, you know, uh, are the people that come into our life afterwards. Would you not say they have to? They find themselves also dealing with the residue. Of what you've gone yes. through, whether it's yes. your actions sometimes, your fears of certain things. Yes. My husband now, it took me a mm-hmm. minute to love him, a minute. Because and see, there's a big difference. People don't understand this. You can love somebody and not be in love with them. There are two different things. Absolutely. And I cared Absolutely. for him. But I wasn't in love with him because I kept like, okay, when is the monster going to come out? When is that demon going to come out? Because I so you kept demon. waiting on the other shoe to drop. <laughs> yes, I was waiting for that. I say Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I was waiting for that to come, and it didn't come. And he said that I'm here because I came to restore. 
I'm not here like everybody else. Wow. And well, I what a, what a powerful story. Yep. In order for, and my journey is not over because I still seek help. I still go once a week to talk to a therapist. I, I still do that because Absolutely. there's still some issues there. There's still some issues. But my first thing I had to do, because it took me forever to forgive my mom, and I didn't get forgive her for her. I could forgive her for myself because my faith in God was at another level. Because I mean, I could not stand that lady. I was very hurt because here it is, you're my mom, and you tell me that you don't want me to mess up your relationship, and you're supposed to protect me. And there have been many that have made those type of mistakes, those type of uh, choices, and not understanding the impact on all the family members that are involved. Well, i tell you one thing, it takes an incredible bravery to be able to share what you all have shared on tonight. And I think it is so important and it's so needed that people need to hear this. More people speak up, the more people are able to come forth and begin to, um, you know, really have real conversation on this. So one of the things I would like to do at this time, uh, I know that you, you've started God Heal All Hurts uh, uh, Ministry. How can... How can someone reach out to you if they wanted to reach out to you? There, web page is there a, a uh, Facebook page? Correct. We what way can they reach out to you? We have a page, and it's it's God Heals All Hurt at Gmail dot com. There's there's pictures up. There's information about um, where to go to get seek help. Um, myself and with my husband. I'm trying to get groups together. I do do it to group on Wednesday night. I use um, this place. It's called True Fast Outreach Ministry. I use this building on Wednesday night to just have group if people want to come and discuss. Whatever is being discussed, it stays there. I mean, I refer people to different jobs, different outlets where they can go and then um we haven't started any outreaching right now because of the situation with my cousin. By the way, I do thank you in your in your life for being there. Um, and it's it's just that. Also, we have our our phone numbers. It's up on our Facebook. We do have a a group page and a page page of Facebook, and it's open to to the public. We're always talking about healing, how to heal, look for warning signs of domestic, any abuse, really, any violence. We we, we have that there. Um, my husband is also a promoter, so he's, you see him always talking about this, 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 it's because he wants people to know, listen, she has a story, and if you need it, if you need help, talk to her. Uh, my phone number is on the web page, both numbers. If you have to reach me on either one of them, they're up there. And that's it. That's what we have. I still go to different places and try to talk to young ladies. And now I talk to young boys too, but young ladies to let them know that. See, people think that it's 
domestic starts when you're grown. But I was in middle school. I was in middle school, and he was in in the twelfth grade. He was a senior in high school. So definitely that that age advantage. These things start very early on. Relationship oftentimes can be very tricky. Uh, oftentimes, looking for acceptance, looking for love, find uh, think that you find it in the hands of someone who's in just as bad of shape as you are in. Their need to control your need for love. The two come together and it ends up being a very, very bad combination. And one that no, by no means did you cause, but yet it's still the conditions. The conditions set you up for what ends up being um, not only abuse, but being controlled on every hand. What a powerful story today. We're so grateful to have had uh, both you and Leela on, and I hope that you continue to listen because I think this is a powerful show. And even right now, uh, before we go into a commercial break, I want to uh, definitely uh, open up the line. There you go, 323-784-9638. That is how you reach us. If you have a question and or comment for either of our guests, simply hit the number one on your keypad. That lets our producer know that you want to get on the air, and we'll get you on the airway tonight. And uh, we are going to be right back after this break. After this break, we'll be coming and we'll be shifting gears just a little bit. And the second part of our time together uh, on this special Hope and Healing, a journey to hold this broadcast. This is your host, J.R. Thicklin. Tonight, we're dealing with confronting the culture of violence. When we return after the break, we're going to be talking to former Deputy Chief of Prince George's, Maryland County, uh, former Deputy Chief Michael Blow, along with Dr. De- Dr. Annette Douglas, and we're going to be talking about confronting this culture of violence, particularly we want to talk about the case that, that swept America last week, as we saw in South Carolina again, this particular school resource officer who literally literally uh, not only use excessive force on this young girl, but why are we such a violent culture? Why do we go to these extent and these extreme? We'll be right back right after this. You'll listen to Open Healing, a journey to hold us. This is your host, J.R. Thicklin, and we'll be right back on the other side of this break. Needing strength. 
God. Needing the force of wisdom in a relationship. Needing a new direction to go in in an abusive situation. That's why we're here. This is the Soul of America Radio. And I'm so very glad that you've joined us here tonight on the Soul of America Radio Network. And from coast to coast, you find us here every Monday night, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, 8 o'clock Central Time, 7 o'clock in the Mountain Time Zone, 6 o'clock in the Pacific, and wherever you may be around the globe. And uh, our show is dedicated with this thought in mind. It is about hope and healing. It is a journey to this wholeness. And yet and still as we see violence happening, particularly domestic violence, but it is not too much of a far stretch to say that perhaps our culture in America has become a very violent culture. The fact of the matter that literally that the culture in our country have seen to be one that is very conducive and that condones violence on every hand. What do we know? We know the fact that domestic violence is definitely a major issue. But I believe in so much of the very same message that was uh, echoed at the 1994 pastoral message of the U.S. Catholic bishops when it was said that our families are torn by violence, our communities are destroyed by violence, our faith is tested by violence. We have an obligation to respond. Violence in our homes, our schools, and streets, our nation and world is destroying the lives and the dignity and hopes of millions of our sisters and our brothers. Fear of violence is paralyzing, polarizing our communities. And then we have a bigger problem because the celebration of violence in much of our media and our music and even video games is poisoning our children. So beyond the violence in the street is the violence in our hearts. Hostility, hatred, despair, and indifference are the heart of a growing culture of violence. Verbal violence in our families, communication and talk shows contribute to this culture of violence that you hear me talking about. Pornography assaults the dignity of women and contributes to violence against them. Our social fabric is being torn apart by a culture of violence that leaves children dead on our streets and families afraid in our home. Folks, if we tell the truth, our society seems to be going numb to human loss and suffering. Isn't it amazing that a nation that is born in a commitment to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is haunted by death, imprisoned by fear, and caught up in the elusive pursuit of protection rather than happiness? A world that's moving beyond the Cold War is caught up in the bloody ethnic tribal and political conflict. Folks, we have a problem in America. It doesn't have to be this way. As dark and as gloomy as our past has been in this country, as as hard and as unbiased, I should say, that has been in this country, it wasn't always this way when it comes to violence at this level. See, we can turn away from violence and we can build our communities of greater peace. 
But it begins with a clear conviction, respect for life. Respect for life is not just a sign or a slogan or a program. It is a fundamental moral principle. It is not only a moral principle, but it's a moral principle that is flowing from our teaching on the dignity of a human person. It is an approach to life that values people over things. Respect for life must go beyond us having a slogan on a T-shirt. Respect for life must guide the choices that we make as individuals and as a society, what we do and what we won't do, what we value and consume, who we admire, whose example we follow, what we support and what we oppose. See, we have to understand that respect for human life is a starting point for confronting a culture of violence. What has brought us here tonight in this discussion? We've seen violence happen on every front in our society. In the most recent weeks, we've seen violence out of control. Last week, our media was filled up with the story and the horrific video of a school resource officer in South Carolina who literally grabs and throws a young teen girl to the floor while she is in her desk and then proceeds to throw her across the room as if she was dirty laundry. And you ask yourself, why even did an officer feel the need to go to that extreme, especially with a teenage girl? What is it that we value about violence? Why is it that we continue to practice violence on every hand? Why is it, folks, that seem like somehow or another, we as a culture have become numb to pain and numb to the things that we continue to do? We have become numb to it. So now we're left with questions. We've gone from year to year and time to time. We have seen the Sandra Blands of this world. We have most recently seen the Corey Jones of this world. We have seen the Jameer Rices of this world, the Trayvon Martins of this world, the Freddie Grays of this world. We have seen these type things happen in our society and our culture, and yet it's still, listen, we are growing numb by the day. The culture of violence has grown to the place, and I still say today that the ruin of a nation begins in the homes of its people, and yet it's still the FBI uniform report years ago said the most unsafest place in America is in the home. Folks, we got a real problem in our society, and we got to be willing to deal with it. And today I have with us two very special guests on this segment of our show that I believe that will help us bring clarity that will help us not only bring clarity, but begin to have a very informative dialogue about confronting this culture of violence in America. I want you today to help me welcome not only uh, the former Deputy Chief of Prince George's County, Maryland, Chief Michael Blow is with us, but also my dear friend and colleague, uh, that's right, our dear friend and colleague, Dr. Annette Douglas, who is definitely not only a behavior scientist, but Dr. Douglas has been involved on so many fronts in dealing with domestic violence and different ills that affect our society. So tonight, I want us to give a big Soul of America welcome to both Dr. Annette Douglas and Well, I want to say good evening to the both of you, and thank you for joining us again on Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. And uh, what I like to say is so much has happened even since we were all together on uh, previous shows. And, uh, wow, it's hard to say where do we dig in at when there's so much to bite off of. But I want to say welcome to the both of you. Thank you. 
You, thank you, know, you. Uh, uh, we, thank you so much. It's good to be here again, and I know it's a, a big subject, and it's a subject that I hope that we'll have some people join in uh, with this discussion because it's it's what's going on now, not something that just happened and it went away. It's continuing. It does continue, and it seems like the more we do these shows, look how we find ourselves at another place. I think one of the first shows that we did uh, with, with Chief there, I think, was talking about the case that happened out there in Texas there with a young man who at uh, under Carlot, you know, uh, he ends up getting shot and killed, but we're talking about his behaviors and his actions that happened that night, and, and it goes on and on and on. You know, um, what is it about our – our, our, our culture, what is it about our society that seemingly is a breeding ground for violence, for violence? I, and I believe this, and I'm going to direct this question to the both of you, and, you know, and, and Dr. D, I'm, I'm going to let you kind of guide this one here, you know, being the behavior scientist that, that you are, but what is it about our culture that causes us to result to violence at the sign of anything, it's that we go for the juggler. We 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 tend to become violent. You know, conflict is a natural thing. The fact that there there are two different individuals, the fact that conflict is more probable to happen than none than not. And so we understand conflict is natural. We don't all agree. We can all agree that we don't all agree. But the natural progression from conflict ought to not be violence. It ought to be resolution. Why is it that we face in our culture today, in our society, such violence that is happening on every hand? Well, you, you've given some really key words uh, when you talk about the conflict and you talk about the cultural changes. And because when we look at this, um, we talk, the subject tonight is a lot of what's going on in the school. And most of the time we talk about what's going on in the home. But that's a blend of two institutions. You definitely don't have one without the other because we, we come from within the home, but we cannot maintain without the education we gain in the schools. And so even when we hear some of our young people come home from school with new words or new behavior, it's what they've learned and adapted from those that they're associating with and they bring it home. But then when they're at home, some of them are in domestic violent homes that they take that bullying from the home into the schools. Now, in one of our previous shows, um, Chief Flo said something really informative and that I'll always remember. It's control and authority. Many of the young people today do not accept the authority coming from the police officer, coming from the adult. Uh, it, it's just a generational change. I was talking with uh, Chief Flo earlier today. We were talking about when we were as children and how we respected our teachers even. Um, and and, and I, I can go back a ways when the teacher was adorable. And you fall in love with your teacher. You know, you respect your teacher. You bring your teacher an apple to school if you can, whatever you can. And then the schools have changed. They changed to the point where there are security officers. There are contract workers out there who are coming as a police security in the schools, uh, as, a, as a teacher and, and sometimes I've taught in the schools. I used to take a, a, a vacation day from my regular job just to go and do some substitute teaching in the school as a break. And I remember when I was going in there and they said, we have an agreement that you must sign to indicate that you will not harass any student. You, there will be no, no sexual harassment at all. 
and the students knew this. So there was one day there was a student who said something rude to a young man. And the young man came over and he said, hey, Doc, he said, uh, she just sexually harassed me, and I know you have to do something about it. Now, can you see how much they took out of my day as a teacher? And what I had to do was to pick up the phone and call security to remove the student. I mean, it's, it's gotten so bad to the student now feels going to school is like going to jail. You know, so it's changed. And the student in South Carolina, she was acting irrational. She was disrespecting her teacher. She was not listening to what the teacher told her to do, whether she, did, whether she liked it or not. She continued to play on her phone or so, I, I think the incident was. The teacher did the right thing by contacting the front office and saying, send somebody here to get this student out of my class. From what I understand in the news, and of course the media blows it up quite a bit, and I'm repeating this somewhat for our listeners who may not have seen the entire story, but from what I understand, when the police officer approached the student, the student wanted to battle the police officer. And he took it upon himself to not only try to restrain the student, I suppose he became a little, a little bit to the point where he was at, sick and tired, and sick and tired of being sick and tired of these students who don't want to listen, that he kind of manhandled her a bit. And from the video, he not only manhandled her, he appeared to be assaulting her. He was attacking that little girl. But he was attacking that little girl because of the rage that came up within him. So I looked back. I said, why was this man so enraged? Why was this adult acting upon this young lady? This Not only was she was not a young man, she was a young lady, okay, who, who we reminded have more tender portions of their body than a young man. Why was he handling her in that manner? Was he disrespecting her as a young woman as well, even though she attacked him? So I looked back to see where did he come from. He came from a Christian family. He came from a father who was also was a minister. He, when he went into the military, he wasn't sure what he was going to do when he came out. He did not have any real significant traumatic experiences in the military that we know of, but he was in the Battle of Iraq and Afghanistan. So he came back home to his prairie-like town in Midwestern United States, and he decided he didn't want to do the work that was there for him before he left. So a friend of his said, why don't you become a policeman? And he did. He became a policeman, and he met someone, and he decided to come to South Carolina. Now, the someone that he's associated with in South Carolina is an African-American young woman who is also a teacher. Now, this is tr they were trying to point out that this was not a racial incident. And to my knowledge, it didn't appear to be a racial incident because based on his other practices, he had also handled some other students in a more strong and, and masculine adult way that you should not handle students in because of the respect that we're supposed to have in regulating students and also in our profession. So he just had a little bit too much. His day had gone on from the morning of working with students who were really hassling one another, and he had to break up many fights as they went along in the classroom. And then he called along to a young lady who really approached him and said, so what you going to do? I'm not giving up my phone and started to battle him. So now I put it in those terms because you can imagine how it responds and how it, 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 how it came out. But my question is, 
should he have been should he have been arrested to the point where he lost his job? Should she have been arrested for also assaulting this this teacher? I'm I'm sorry, this police officer. Now where did it go? You know, then I understand the young lady ended up with a cast on her arm, but was it broken? I'm not sure if the cast was something that's a camouflage for a civil suit. You know, maybe she is truly hurt. But in any instant, whether she's broken any bones or not, her mind has been crippled. So she has been hurt in some manner. But was that the right approach? approach? Well, I I tell you, you you brought up a lot of good points about this. And and when you look at this whole issue behind police officers in school, this this is not a new phenomenon. Of course, the whole concept with officers in the school really gained a lot of traction during the uh, the 1990s, and uh, and now, of course, when you look at at police officers in the schools, you sort of think of that whole active shooter prevention type thing, you know, as these as other unfortunate incidents uh, have have occurred have occurred uh, throughout throughout the country. Uh, but when we look at, at the violence with, with kids and, and fighting in schools, as we all know, it's nothing new. Uh, it's been happening for years. But, you know, the reactions to these challenges have evolved over the years. Of course, with SROs, uh, as Dr. Douglas pointed out, we're seeing more uh, belligerent attitudes among some of the students. So the majority of them are doing the right things and doing some incredible things in school. And, of course, many of us recall when, when we grew up, uh, as Dr. Douglas pointed out, the, uh, the teacher was, was a queen and, and the principal was just shy of a demigod. And that's the level of respect that we had uh, for, our, for our officials. And, of course, now things have, have evolved to a point where we have some young people that, that challenge authority. But at the end of the day, um, the adults are still the adults, and it's up to the adults to make sure that as challenging as a young person may make the situation, uh, the SRO or the teacher or the principal is still the person in charge and is still the adult in the room. And so when I look at that situation, there was a whole lot of, there was, a whole, there was enough blame to go around uh, to fill the room. Certainly the young lady was very belligerent. She was extremely disrespectful. But on the other hand, you had a trained police officer that that certainly appeared to have lost control of the entire situation. And so now we're all asking these questions. Okay, what type of training did he have? What type of alternatives existed to handle this differently? Uh, what What could the teacher have done differently to resolve it? What could the assistant principal have done differently to resolve it? And, of course, what could the SRO have done to resolve this differently? Because one of the things I found interesting about the video was the reaction of the principal of who was standing in the room. He really didn't appear as if he was overwhelmed or, or disgusted by what he saw going on between the deputy and that student. So it, it kind of tells me there was some dynamics going on way before the deputy got there. And, of course, uh, all the signs may have been there, and now it has erupted into a, an unfortunate situation where the deputy has now been fired, and this young lady, of course, is going to be facing some administrative and possibly even some criminal charges of her own. So this was just a an unfortunate situation 
all the way around the way I see it. Well, you know, um, I was looking at an article. Like you said, this is not new. But, you know, now everybody has a Twitter and a Facebook and an Instagram and a tweet and so forth, and kids take pictures, have phones in, the, in their hands in the classrooms, which I don't approve of. Um, they shouldn't be left in their lockers. To me, they should be left in their lockers. Why are they in the classroom? Uh, because they use they can use them to cheat on tests. Everything's on the internet, but they took pictures and they took videos and they passed it right on. So that's how it's real in more recognition today than it than before. When I was looking back at different states, um, Mike, there's um, Wind Park Middle School a school we're familiar with in Prince George's County, mm-hmm. there was a, a substitute teacher who actually beat down a couple of students for not listening to him. And, um, and he actually pulled off his belt and decided to whip them, to give them a whipping. And he was, of course, removed from the school and he lost his job. But they said that's that's corporal punishment, which is not allowed in some states. In some states, it is allowed. So Maryland happens to be a state where it is not allowed. So not only did this teacher lose his job and lost his license to go back into the school system, he is being sued in the civil case by both of the students' parents. Now, there are 19 states that permit corporal punishment. I mean, and I, and I said, well, what in the world is corporal punishment? A corporal punishment in the school involves striking the student a given number of times in a methodical or premeditated ceremony. That means not just taking off the belt and whipping them. That means striking them a certain number of times. Now, of one of the 19 states was Arkansas. And I'm going to personally relate to that because I went to school in Arkansas several years ago. I went there for two years. And coming out of New York, when I see the teachers pull out a switch, I'm like, what? They're going to spank the children in the class? Well, you know, I was one of those good ones. I wouldn't let, I wouldn't let anything happen. But my poor brother got a whipping every day. And the teacher could use a switch. And the teacher would hit so many times for whatever rule he broke. So he may get three strikes, or he may get ten strikes. Now, if it was so bad, it went to the principal, and the principal was allowed to use a belt. And it was one of those belts that you see they shopping the razors on in the old-fashioned barbershop. And the principal could hit you a certain number of times. You get five licks, or you get eight licks. Now, that's what they describe, and I could relate to that when I said, well, school, corporal punishment is the same thing. Now, it's permitted in 19 states. Now, another state that J.R. and I live in is Florida. J.R. is permitted in Florida, but it has to be methodical by a certain number, certain number of counts. Now, in Florida, in the state of Florida, what is not permitted is for you to spank your child at home. You cannot spank your child. That child will get on the phone and say, oh, my mama gave me a whipping. You cannot do that. J.R. and I had a seminar, and the uh, domestic violence advocates were there, and one of the ministers in our seminar said, I have five boys. 
and when they get out of hand, I whip their tails. And the advocate said, oh, please don't let me hear that because that's against the law. See, it's, not, it's against the law to spank your own child, but it's not against the law in the state of Florida to methodically strike that child for committing some sort of type of punishment in the classroom. So now we get back to what's happened where it appears to be brutal, okay, where it appears to be brutal. We get back to that. That's when it becomes a big offense, okay? So there's, a, there's some measurements out here, and there's some mixed messages that are out of place. Now, each, each state has their own ruling, but the federal government also has a rule. And the federal government permits the methodical spanking. They permit the methodical punishment, but they ask for it to be in a ruled regulation. So you see there's a lot of mixed messages there. So where are we going with this? Now, I say that they looked at this case in South Carolina. They wanted to make it racial. Anytime there's something of a different race, they're going to holler up race discrimination, race brutality, but it's not always that. That's just an easy way out, okay? I was looking at another case in Welch, Oklahoma, where a male white teacher and a male white student and what happened was the boy was unruly in class, 17 years old. He decided he's going to let his friend write on his back, you know, like they're doing tattooing and ink. And he had pulled up his shirt and was allowing his friend to write on his back. The teacher said, stop. We're not having that in this class. And the boy said, well, I'm doing it anyway. The teacher reached out with a strap, a big strap. And he whipped the boy. He said, you want to put some marks on your back? Let me show you how to do it. And he whipped that boy across his back. Now, this just happened, um, I think, last month. But the case was brought to the courts last week. Not only did the teacher lose his license as a teacher, but the school is being sued for having that type of teacher in the school. And the boy, and when you look at the video, he's laughing. He's, he thinks it's a joke. You know, he was he did something wrong. The teacher handled it inappropriately, but it, it, it was something that needed to be handled. And so then we say, well, are we handling our young people or are we training and teaching our young people? It starts at home. It really does start at home. Absolutely. Go right ahead, Chief. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Please continue. No, I I just want to say, and one of the things I heard Dr. Douglas saying there, yeah, it does start at home. And and we have a real serious problem in this country because we don't want to point the fingers back at home. We don't. And it's amazing how we try to get all these interventions. We try to establish all kind of interventions for students. And I'm one. I mean, I have programs that I do with young men. I have a program now that I started over a month ago dealing with young men, destiny changers, building boys to men. And one of the things I realized that as I was writing this program and continue to write on this program is that it's impossible for it to be successful without having a parent involvement component. It's impossible for it to be successful and reach the potential that it needs to without parents being involved. 
And so often we're crying for, oh, we need the community to be involved. We need the churches to be involved. We need all those. And that may be that might be true. But we keep trying to involve everyone except for the principal, primary people that should be involved, and that is the parents. And until children have a respect at home, they'll never have a respect for authorities outside of the home. And we're seeing that happen all over. You know, you, you were talking, and, I, and I, you took me down memory lane. You know, growing up, I grew up in Alabama in the Deep South. And so I could still remember the days where, yeah, corporal punishment was allowed. I still remember the boys and the people who got the whipping. I could still see our teacher, Leola Young Durant, wrapping her legs around Chester as she was actually uh, striking him with the belt because he seemingly was rebellious and acted out. But at the end of the day, she never had to wrestle with him. There was a certain, if you would, respect that came that we had for our teachers. Very seldom, if ever, you would see a kid who would bow up at a teacher. You would not hear a kid that would talk disrespectful to a teacher. And one of the reasons was because at home, the kid feared the parent at home and therefore feared authority. We're living in a day and time that children don't fear parents. They don't fear authority. So in many ways, we oftentimes see police officers get a bad rap. Now, do we have some bad things happening? Of course we do. But I wonder how often, how many people will admit that there are several incidents that are oftentimes escalated because of the behavior of the subject, of the suspect. Sometimes they refuse to follow a very simple order. Sometimes as a matter of, listen, why is it that we got to continue to mouth back when we was asked to do something? And that's the same type of behavior that we see happen in the, in the classroom, at the schools, and we oftentimes see it happen at home. And so we're dealing with a, uh, we're dealing with a broke system. We're dealing with the fact that parents must understand this, that when you start trying to be your children's friend first without being their parent, you've done them a disservice. They must understand the respect of authority. They must understand the respect of home in order to function in this world in, in, in the correct way. And I think it's very important to do so. And I'll say, I'll say this, and I'll be done for a moment, because I also remember one of our earliest interviews that uh, we had uh, with Chief on it, and you said something that I have not forgotten. And you talked about the fact that we have to also realize that those officers grew up in certain homes as well, that they have had certain life experiences. And just because their officers don't exempt them from being affected by those things. So we have to understand what happens with the officers that have grown up in those very type of conditions. And they themselves find themselves in the midst of very swift things happening. Because oftentimes you don't get a do-over as an officer. I understand that clearly. You don't get a chance to rewind and say, okay, let me do it over. Because everything is happening in the moment. But we have to all understand the impact of life on the way that we think. We act the way that we act because we think the way that we think. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And, and you know, we also talked a little bit about the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And yes. this is a critical part of black fulfillment and, and survival, and that is getting the appropriate education uh, so that you can provide for your family and be a good citizen. And, and you know, the, the thing that I find most troubling when I see these types of incidents or when I read information about the achievement level among, uh, particularly among African-American youngsters, although 
rates have been improving in various systems, but not to the level where their counterparts are. And that is, you know, when I when I when I heard about the, the attitude of the young lady, and particularly uh, listening to Dr. Douglas's comments about attitudes and and those types of things, it just reminds me that. As, and I'm saying this because I think we all share some responsibility in this, and that includes me as well. But we have relatives that died and were beaten and swallowed a lot of tear gas so that we could have the opportunity to have an education. Just in our lifetime, you could be killed attempting to get an education. Absolutely. And that is, and that is something that we – appear to have lost sight of, and, and I'm not saying uh, everywhere, but that is a very powerful thing in our lifetimes, in the last 40, 50, 60 years, that there were places in the United States of America where you were either learning in a one-room shack with a candle going, or you were not welcome or permitted to get an education in a school with, with current textbooks and supplies and those types of things. And so that's something that we really have to make sure that we are are relaying our struggle and our history to our young people. And, and you know, single-parent households and foster parents and those types of situations, again, they're not new. All of us can remember those, those folks that went to school with us throughout the years that had broken families or other challenges that um, that we hear about today, and many of those individuals were able to overcome because, you know, the, the one thing that I, I'll never forget, and this is something that the old folks used to, used to tell us, is there were three things that were expected of the leaders of the community, and, and, they, and they looked at the leaders of the community as, you know, Mr. Stokes, who used to, to come through selling the watermelons, or... Dr. Bird, who was the dentist on the block, or whoever that person was. Three things, inspection, correction, and affection. And those three principles are the key to our survival. And And it's just like any systemic process. When any of those things are missing, then we're going to have deviance and other types of things going on in our community that are going to cause us not to fulfill certain things that we need to take care of. And certainly uh, a disruptive school environment is is just, that's not going to work for us. If our kids aren't learning, they're not getting good jobs, they're not able to do a lot of things and and be good role models and and all kinds of other things. And, And I know Dr. Douglas knows all those things very well from her professional perspective. And so I, I just think that as we look at these incidents, um, you know, there was one in, at Grand High School in, in Oklahoma. We had a 16-year-old, uh, again, in the hallway without a pass. All these things they talked to the kids about from day one at orientation. Here are the rules. This is what you can and you can't do. And when he's asked to go in the hall into a classroom or to go get a pass, he takes up a fighting stance. And, of course, the adults um, didn't know what's going on and, and – punches the kid in the face, and now he's facing uh, uh, administrative and, and criminal sanctions and so forth. And, and, again, 
what was the root cause of this? Now, again, we go back to there was an adult on the scene and were there alternatives and those types of things. But we really have to get a handle on ensuring that our young people understand, uh, number one, they understand their greatness, they understand their potential, they understand the struggle that allowed us to, to get to a point where we can now get an education, a good education, and, and also the, the, the sanctions that are awaiting you if you do not uh, follow the rules. And, and, I, and I think that we just need to make sure that we never lose sight of that as we look toward the future. Well, I think you're so exactly right there. And what I love to do right now is definitely open up our lines. There are many people out there on the line. Area code 323-784-9638. That's the number you can reach us if you have a question and or comment uh, for either of us, Dr. Douglas or uh, Chief uh, Michael Blow. If you're already on the line, just simply hit the number one on your keypad. Hit number one. That lets our producer know that you want to come on the air and you have a question and a comment, and do so at this time. We're dealing with confronting this culture of violence, and I think there's been some very worthwhile things that are, have been said. Because when we look at it, guess what? We we as a people have uh, uh, faced very, very uh, similar things in our time past, did not have the same resources that we have today, and yet it's still we overcame. We learned to do some things that, that, that brought about a different result. And one of the things that I'll say, and you said it so very well, is the fact, listen, we are living in a lifetime where people die to get an education. You know, people forget about this, the Ruby Payne story. People forget about the different stories of people who broke the segregation uh, barrier, and, that, and whether or not we feel like that was good for us or bad for us, that's a whole different discussion. But I'm saying that people died in order for us to have a right to a quality education, to be educated, because we knew that education was our way out. We also knew that from the opposing view, to keep us uneducated was assurance that we will always be in bondage. And our problem is that we have gotten away from those three basic elements in which you talked about. When you talked about, you know, uh, you know, you talked about inspection, and you start talking about not only inspection, but you also talked about the fact of beyond the uh, inspection that we also had to deal with the fact of when you talk about the affection part. But we also needed to understand the important part about the leadership, those elements of leadership in our community was crucial. Now, what have we have? We've now had a few generations of a lot of things that have impacted us. We've had the banishing black. We have had the banishing black male in our society. We've both, uh, we're dealing with the school to prison pipeline. And once again, once again, that will contribute back to being uneducated and, and those things. And then we're dealing with the fact of guess what? We're dealing with the fact of the absence of, of really effectiveness in our community when there is no respect for authority. And people might not, might not believe this, but with the absenteeism of men and fathers in the homes of our children, in many ways they have lost this sense of respect for authority, period. We have to reestablish those things. Because the reality is, is that we, when we forget about the battles that have been fought, when we forget about the path that have brought us to this place, we forget about those principles, and we don't know how to. We don't even understand the things that was fought and bled for, the things that we ought to be celebrating. And every time we live a life of disrespect, when we live a life of, of, of disregard, and we throw caution to the wind, we have basically snarled in the face of those that have paid 
in many cases, the ultimate price for us to be here. So this culture of violence has to stop. We have to return back to a place where we understand uh, foundational things. And I think one of the things that we have to understand is the fact of this, is that the fact we cannot expect to raise strong leaders when we refuse to apply leadership, effective leadership at the beginning. Once again, it was Frederick Douglass who says, that it's easier to raise strong children than it is to repair broken men. And we are dealing with generations that have gotten older, and we're trying to repair broken men. I spend three days now in prisons, two days in Miami, one day in Pocahontas, and I'm dealing with broken men. I'm dealing with men who had missed opportunities, men oftentimes that were absent and uh, had absentee fathers in their lives. And guess what? They're incarcerated. So you know what's happening? That cycle is being repeated. Not only were their fathers absent in their lives for whatever reason, but now they are absent in the lives of their children. Who's providing leadership? Who's providing guidance? Who's holding down the fort? Who's teaching guiding principles? We have to get back to those type of things if we're going to see an effective society. Eric O three two three seven eight four nine six three eight. That is the number to reach us. Eric O three two uh, 3784-9638, that is the number to get in. If you have a question or comment for our guest, simply hit the number one on your keypad. That lets our producer know you want to get on. We'll get you on tonight. You listen to Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. We'll be right back after this commercial break, and we'll take your questions and your comments at this time. Healing a journey to wholeness with J.R. Thicklin is coming back right after this. You're listening to the Soul of America Radio LLC. This is the one and only Soul. Hotline 
right now at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. If you didn't have a chance to write that number down, call Jay Thicklin right now at 1-323-784-9638. Speak to Jay right now at 323-784-9638. And now, Hope and Healing, Our Journey to Wholeness, continues with your host, J.R. Thicklin. Healing a journey to hold us. This is your host, J.R. Thickland, and I'm so very glad that you've joined us here tonight on the Soul of America Radio Network. We've been dealing this entire night, especially our edition of Hope and Healing a Journey to Hold Us, and doing this show tonight, but we definitely don't want to cut off and uh, side of our discussion tonight. We've been dealing with confronting the culture of violence that we have. We opened up the earlier hour with a very special guest, uh, Leela Adams and uh, Minister Cassandra Smith, that shared their very compelling stories of the abuse that they, they've lived through and have gone through and the mindset of the men that did these type of violent acts to them and the reasons why they returned or found themselves in these relationships. But what we realized is that so much of this violence is stemming right from home. We know that domestic violence is a learned behavior, but we also know that we're living in a culture that is filled with violence. We're living in a culture that promotes violence, a culture that accepts violence to a certain degree. Every Sunday, we look at a very violent sport that is called football. We find entertainment in it. We all like a great hit. But low as that hit is within what we consider an acceptable context. Then we find ourselves finding ourselves inside of video games that many folks purchase for their children. And these games to fill with bang, bang, shoot them up, cut, bleed, and real-life animation that depicts violence. And we, somehow or another, we embrace that type of violence. We find ourselves enjoying all type of things that promotes violence. Hey, who doesn't like a good boxing match? Who's the next greatest champion? And we watch people inflict violence upon one another, and it's perfectly all right because we consider that in a safe context. Our problem is that in our society, we are so so infatuated with violence that it's hard for us to really take a hard-line stand about violence. Because this violence somehow or another has entertained us. This violence in many cases has made some people rich. This violence in many cases has been the ticket out of poverty for some. So how do we confront a culture of violence that we basically have embraced in some cases, but we don't know how to control when it goes just a little bit overboard? Tonight we still have with us uh, Dr. Annette Douglas, our friend, our behavior scientist, as well as uh, uh, Michael Owen. And I want to continue along that vein there. And those of you that are listening, area code 323 if you have a question and a comment, simply hit the number one on your keypad that lets our producer know that you want to get on the air, and we'll get you on the air tonight. But I turn it back over to uh, Dr. Douglas and, uh, and uh, Chief Blow 
as we were talking about this, we we got to go back to the home. We got to go back to the culture, and, and, and why these things are happening. How do we turn it around if we can? Well, you know, Pastor T, I was listening to the commercial. Please tell Mr. Stallings, I love that commercial. It was informative and it had a show of its own. But he mentioned something that I thought about with the young lady who was um, hurt in school. And he talked about having flashbacks and also the emotional distress. So before I respond to your question, I just wanted to mention that that young lady is going to have that for a while. Now, the people who were in the classroom, we call them third party. So they were third harassed also as a third party, okay? Now, they will carry that behavioral instinct of having flashbacks and emotional distress just over the scene, the situation of it. It reminded some people of the um, the incident in um in California where the man was beaten by the police, dragged out of his car and beaten by the police. And this is happening in the school. Now, back at the home situation, what do we do at home to make the change? And that's guidance with our children. Now, in some cases, not all homes are not having these types of situations. Um, and then we look at that socially, there are different societies that have those types of situations, and there are societies that's unknown to. So, for instance, there may be a an area where it's, it's more depressed social socioeconomically, and you may find some of those pressures and those inner home um, instincts going on where people are fighting one another because of the unhappiness that's so in the home for whatever reason that comes out into the school, and then it spills out in the child's behavior. And here's the adult. Like we say, the adult is not free of this as well. The adult grew up in a home, maybe having something similar. Now, I noticed in the, um, some schools, well, I'd like to see police, for instance, taken out of the school. I don't think they belong inside the school. I believe that they belong outside the school. Now, remember the children that were killed in the Connecticut school. They had no police around that school whatsoever. And, of course, it changed very quickly with that incident that every school in the country began to put police, you know, stationed there at the school. Now, that's why I said, okay, outside the school, we keep from harm outside coming into the school. But within the school, teaching the children how to govern themselves, okay, with respect to one another, that's where they have to start, respect to one another. In some of the counties of um, Maryland, they have a system called the peer judicial system, whereas if this, for instance, where this young lady had this phone and she wouldn't give the phone up, the teacher would write her up and she would be, she would have a hearing date to go before her peers who would judge her behavior and they would decide what her punishment would be. It may be suspension. It may be that she's going to fail this particular class. It may be that she has to do some sort of retribution in the school. But it's where the peers work with one another. Okay? And then if it gets any worse, of course, 
then they'd have to bring in a stronger force from the Board of Education. But at the same time, this police officer is outside of the school. If there was a fight going on in the school and people began to hurt one another, or of course the police would have to come in to handle that. But in the incident where she was not respecting her teacher or obeying her teacher's um, question to her to remove the phone or her, his demand of her to remove the phone, that, I don't see where that called for a police officer to come in and grab her out of the chair. It kind of got out of hand. And we're in the village that I live in now, and I say that because even though it's a part of the county, it's not the same all over the county. But in the village I'm in now, the policemen are not allowed to be in the school. The police sit outside the school. And I looked at the elementary and the middle school. I have not examined the high schools yet. But in the middle and elementary and elementary schools, those students have that same type of peer judicial system. And I hear them talking about it. Because I heard one of my little ones come in and say that the child had been bullying him. And I thought, I'm going up to the school. And the mother said, well, no, we use email. I emailed the teacher. And he said, I don't want either one of you to do that. He said, because first I'm going to talk to the, young, the, the boy who was bullying me and ask him why does he want to bully me. And then if he can't give me a satisfactory answer, then I'll ask the teacher if we three of us can have a meeting. And that would mean he and the boy and the teacher. So that I was, I was like, oh, wow, that's a good idea. You know, but, and this is what some schools are beginning to teach students to help to govern themselves in the school. I'd like to see that happen. Something else that's come to my attention today is that the, there is a, a, a law that's about to be passed regarding this gun control. And the, the law is saying that people can carry guns concealed and in some cases not concealed. And that's, they're extending it to the schools. They're extending it to say, now that you can carry a gun in school if you're over the age of 18. There was a Michigan father that went to school, his daughter's school, with his weapon. And he, it was not concealed. And they told him at the school door, you can't come in here with this gun. Well, he went to court, and he won his case. He can go in there with his gun. That is permitted. So now they want to pass it in a federal case, in federal instances, in every state, not just the state law, every state, over the 18 and over, if you have a gun and you want to bring it to school, you're welcome to bring it to school. But the decision is whether or not it will be concealed or not concealed. Now, can you imagine what's going to happen with that situation if that law is passed? We're in trouble. Well, we created the Wild Wild West, and um, and and people are going to self-police themselves. And that self-policing, once again, the gray line of understanding where your liberty ends and mine begins. And people on hand. Uh, it becomes recreational, and what we have now is the uh, the uh, propensity for violence, in my opinion, will increase, and there are going to be a lot of innocent people that are hurting and that will get killed, and a lot of things will happen, not because everybody was scared initially as the reason why we want to pass these type of laws, 
but because of the fact everybody wants to have some form of control. And I believe that when we change our system, that everyone now is policing themselves, I think we have a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just a quick point on the on the uh on the officers in schools. Um I could tell you in, in, in Prince George's we had some very good experiences with that that whole concept. Uh I was also the director of school security for several years before uh, we left the area. And um I can tell you that we had already embarked upon the journey of sort of decriminalizing things, if you will. Uh, certain types of, of actions uh, would would not necessarily get you in the system. I, I know uh, Jr. talked about that school-to-prison pipeline. And, and so we had a process where certain violations you'd have to go not only in front of that peer review, but also there was another door that you would you would have to go on the weekends, you and your parents would have to go to some some classes in the community that community leaders were a part of, and you would learn leadership, you'd do tutoring and those types of things. And if you successfully completed that that uh, sanction, then the like the incident never occurred. Of course, if if the young person decided, well, I'm not going to do this either then you, you had the privilege of having a conversation with one of the juvenile masters, and then they would take those formal sanctions. So we had already begun that process of, of you know, reducing the amount of arrests and those types of official things, if you will. And what we actually saw was not only was there a, a, a decline in those types of arrests, but the incidents of disruptive behavior were also uh, dropping as well. And some of the SROs, uh, were doing things above and beyond just normal police-related duties. Many of them were becoming coaches and assistant coaches and tutors and helping with the drama club and, you know, a lot of different things in the schools as well. So that not only did the young see them in their official capacity, but they also saw them as folks that liked music and picnics and, and the Redskins and all kinds of other things. So it, it was overall a, a very good experience, I think, and it, it sort of, gave both sides, if you will, I hate to use that word, a chance to see the other in, in a light other than that traditional role. I think that is absolutely incredible. What you describe, Chief, is exactly what, what on a smaller scale, that we've been looking at here. I belong to one of the neighborhood accountability boards, and one of the things that we're trying to do there is a sense of restorative justice. And yet it's still, you know, we're doing it in very small pockets. We're doing it not only in very small pockets, but we're doing very small misdemeanors, you know, and that this is happening. I believe this. I believe that we have to create some diversionary programs that are going to be one that actually equip people with skills, as you're saying, that empower them. I like to think this way, and I think Scripture backs me up, you know, Apostle Paul said, that when I was a child, I thought as a child, I, I spake as a child, I understood as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things, which spoke to his maturity. Maturity ought to bring transformation in our lives. And so there are a lot of things that children may do when they're small. I believe that if there's the right intervention and the right things that happen early on, that we can, we can right a wrong. 
And I think that we can decriminalize a lot of things and give them opportunity to understand how do we correct those things. I believe that there is we're living with the backlash of over-criminalizing a lot of things. And so guess what? They lead to prisons and stuff like that, and we thought the prisons and jails was going to be a deterrent, but it's no longer a deterrent anymore because it's so easy to go there. It's so easy to go there. And I think that we have to change it through empowering, through showing people a better way, through people recognizing there are some things that are, can be constructive. But you know our problem with that, Chief, is that it, it requires something. The cost of that is so great. And the cost is not what I'm talking about, the dollar sign. People refuse to invest T-I-M-E inside of transformation. And so because they don't want to invest that type of time, we deal with what we deal with inside of it. But it's going to take somebody making some sacrifices. It's going to take somebody that's willing to walk with these young people and walk with these individuals now. Because it is a, it's a two-edged sword. When everyone goes to jail, oftentimes for things that I don't think should be that type of jail time for so what? Now you remove them from society, but what did you remove from society? You remove them from society in many ways. You crippled them even more because, in fact, now once again you move that man out of that out of place. He's out of the children's life. He's out of someone's life, and we end up with a bigger problem. Now we're dealing with the backlash of the absenteeism. That's correct. We're dealing with the lack of support. We're dealing with so many different elements there that it would have been a lot easier to have taken the route to try to rehabilitate through the right diversionary program and empowerment that produced character, that produced a sense of responsibility, and also made them feel a part of, I think that would have done wonders. And so I definitely appreciate your model there that you spoke of. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm listening to us talk, and we're having a great conversation. And um we're bringing up many points that I hope our listeners can tune into. Well, you know, it's amazing. Uh, time has flown. We're, we're actually we're actually over the studio time, although we still have some callers that are holding on with us inside of this. So we're actually over the studio time, and and I'm looking now, and I I think that perhaps we we still have the phone audience i'm not sure if we still have the uh, internet audience that may have le- may have uh, actually been cut off as we struck the uh 10:30 time but what i would like to do in here and we we're 10:40 so i might as well take it up to at least 10:45 i think what's so important is the type of things that you just described chief i think we have to find a way to do better I think we have to find a way. When everything looks like we're taking folks down, somewhere along the line, and Chief, you're, you're an expert at this better than I am, when did we start militarizing our police? When did it go from the fact, I can recall growing up as a little boy, I admired the police. I looked up, little boys would talk about, when I grow up, I want to be a police officer. I want to be a firefighter. And and I could still recall in our classes, you know, it would be a great number of kids. I want to be a police officer when I grew up, when I grow up. I think you go into yeah. a lot of schools today, you might not find that being the case. Well, because that, that'll, uh, yes. oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that that gets back to the whole aspect of training and what are the expectations 
that are laid out for the officers in the various jurisdictions. You know, uh, if you've got SROs, let's just say in 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 Nebraska, what what are the the parameters? What are the expectations? What are the guidelines? What is the training? What is the support that is given to those personnel who are assigned to those schools? We also need to look at do we do we need to ensure that there is standardization in terms of the interaction of of school resource officers and students. Now, obviously, jurisdictions have have unique needs all over the country, but do we now need to look at, okay, and, and there are tons of studies and, and scholarly journals that have written on school resource officers, and there's a lot of data out there, but just in terms of this is the national model in terms of what a school resource officer should do. Uh, because in certain jurisdictions, you do have folks that are in the school, and it's sort of a, you know, uh, I'm here, I'm in charge, you know, and don't don't bother to interact with me unless you're spoken to. And in other jurisdictions, the the officers are they have the community policing approach. You know, you're there to interact, to to listen, to learn, and when appropriate, to take the the appropriate action. And so. There are different models all over the country that some of them have sort of that militaristic approach and bearing, whereas others do not. And so, again, just like in every profession, this is another opportunity for the law enforcement community to look at the whole dynamic of school resource officers and and figure out how to standardize the procedures and practices so that, just like you said, People know that you're there. They see the uniform. But at the same time, you know, there is that role model aura that's being projected by those men and women who are in in the schools. And, and, I, and I will say that there are thousands of officers who have that, who have that, that the, the, the kids love them, the parents love them, the administrators love them. And, uh, you know, ironically, the, the deputy in Spring Valley, there was actually a protest movement by some of the children that wanted to bring him back to the school. So, uh, wow. you know, it just, yeah. And, and so that just shows you that this, like Dr. Douglas, this particular incident just really got under his skin and he behaved outside of his normal demeanor because certainly, as we all know, uh, young people can be very candid. And in this case, they're, Many of them are coming out in support of the of the deputy. That's not to 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 excuse what how he responded to this, but uh, it, it's just another dynamic of that whole unfortunate situation. Indeed, indeed. You know, and, and that's the thing about it too. You know, that's a double edged sword, and that's a double edged sword when these sort when these type things happen. Um, you know, and the double edged sword is this. No matter what happened, we have to be very careful about how we also handle law enforcement. And the reason I say we have to be careful about that, because once again, we still look for law enforcement to protect and to serve. And it's like this, and maybe you know, maybe I'm very far-reaching here. It's like this. I, I say this oftentimes when I teach parenting classes, and I tell parents, you don't want to undercut the other parent. You don't want to. 
You don't want to, uh, in other words, put the other parent in a position where you have minimized them, you have brought them to shame, and therefore you have minimized their influence and their power. And so now what happens? You now, the children have lost respect for this parent, but you have contributed to it. And so as a society, we have to be very careful. Yes, we want to hold officers accountable. We want all those things to happen, but we also want to look at the whole thrust of the matter. Is this a training issue? Can we can we correct these type things? Can we do it without demonizing the officer? Because by the same token, if we look at some of the behaviors of some of the children or some of the behaviors of some of the uh, suspects there, those behaviors are not always exactly, you know, uh, 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 behaviors as well. So in my way of saying, no, we're not going to justify it, you know, we also must understand that it is so important the way that we present this. We, we can't afford to demonize all officers, and by the same token, We've got to make sure that we hold our kids accountable inside of it. So with that being said, let's have some parting words and some closing words. Uh, I do give another opportunity for you. If you're listening tonight and you have a question or a comment, a question or a comment for our guests, uh, your last chance, there you go, 323-784-9638. That is how you reach us. And then you hit number one on the keypad if you'd like to have a question and a comment. And if not, I'm going to give the last final words to both uh, Dr. Douglas and Chief Blow. Well, I'd just like to say that um, I noticed that the FBI is coming into the uh, Spring Valley High School in South Carolina regarding that incident. Um, and and I wonder what why the FBI? You know, so they indicate that they want to come to uh, curb questions of, about a conflict of interest. So I'll be very interested in you two listeners uh, interested in what the FBI report is um, and try to figure out why is it that they're coming as a, an FBI unit. You know, um, Federal Bureau of Investigation is now looking at the school policies or or the incident itself. So I'm looking forward to get, hearing and reading that report. And I'd I like to say thank you to both of you for having me with you tonight to have the open discussion, and I hope that we've touched and answered questions of many of our listeners. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Chief Blow. Yes, sir. Uh, again, I'd just like to echo Dr. Douglas's uh, thanks. I, I always enjoy having the opportunity to have a great conversation with the both of you and to hear the thoughts of, of your your listeners. And, and I think, again, this is another subject that is certainly very important, and, and I just hope that as we move forward, uh, we will continue to develop alternatives for those parents and guardians and grandparents and, and other community members who have stepped in and stepped up to raise some of the young people in the community and and also i hope that we can continue to expose our our young people to those those things whether it's it's the media or activities or or other types of events that that continue to promote how important they are and and we often talk about the children are our future but we need to also make sure we never forget to recognize them as as present people and and how important that is and so, again, I just appreciate the opportunity to 
have this incredible discussion with you all this evening, and I look forward to many more. Well, I tell you, you're absolutely, uh, you're absolutely, both of you are absolutely a wealth of information to have. I think that we're all very grateful to have both of your insights inside of this because I think it's so easy in our society to be on the complaint wheel. I, I, it doesn't take a whole lot to complain, but it takes a lot to have insight, to take ownership of certain things, and to be more solution-focused than we are problem uh, screaming. And I think that we have to look for a meaningful solution. I think the last thing that you said, uh, Chief Blow, is very important, that we, as much as our children are the future, we cannot definitely minimize or deny uh, the power of their present moment. And that present moment is being impacted by our decisions or lack thereof. Their present moment is being, uh, is being impacted by whether or not parental, uh, lack of parental guidance or parental guidance. And we have to take responsibility there. We never want to teach children to usurp the law because to teach them to usurp the law, we're actually setting ourselves up. Because when or when do they differentiate between usurping what we have said? So it's important that we lay the foundation for the future. And that's the only way that we're going to begin to confront this culture of violence. Listen, in our last parting words today, I want to first of all thank each and every one of you that have listened today. For those of you that will go back and listen to this on podcasts and those of you that will find it, uh, uh, find it worthwhile to share it with someone else, I want to say this to you, that each of us have within ourselves a way that we can confront the culture of violence in our society. I do believe that the ruin of a nation begins in the homes of its people. I believe that's the first place where we start. I believe our community, our society, our nation is a reflection of what happens in our home. And I think that we have to take a responsibility once again, bring the power back to the home, empower from within, begin to teach those basic valuable principles, the love of, love of self, the love of country, and the love of God. I think those things are important. I think when we learn to respect one another, then guess what? We can definitely find our way to the top. And that's what it's going to take to, in other words, confront this culture of violence. And until next time, this is J.R. Thicklin, and I'm so glad that you've joined us here tonight on the Soul of America Radio Network. And until next time, we say to you, listen, you don't have to be silent about violence. Open up. Be an upstander, not a bystander. And together, we'll make a difference in confronting this culture of violence. Be safe. And until next time, this is J.R. Thicklin saying good night.
Thank you. 